Back to Haggai, chapter 2. We turn to pick up where we left off last time at verse 10. This is at page 791 in your pew Bible, if that helps. Haggai is a tiny little prophet there, nestled into the end of your Old Testaments, just four, uh, three doors back from, from Matthew. This is a short prophet in Scripture, uh, short in print, I mean, not necessarily in stature. It uh, consists uh, of basically inspired sermons preached to God's people at a particular point in their history. Having been brought back in the Lord's kind providence to the promised land, back to Zion, from the uh, exile they were under in the foreign land under Babylon, God's people have been given back now in Jerusalem and Zion a basic task, a command from God, rebuild my temple for my glory. So how have they done? Well, not so well. Uh, they started to obey uh, just like we often start to obey. But then they faltered. We do too, don't we? Political pressure, fear, whatever it was, turned them from their resolve of obedience to pleasing God and serving instead themselves, lining their own nests. God's priorities for their lives were moved to the back burner. Their own comforts were moved to the front. God's house languished while their houses were paneled. Haggai's unenviable pastoral task was to shake them from their lackadaisical disobedience and indifference concerning the things of God back to making God's priorities their own. Happily, they did. This this book, this past chapter, has, has been like every pastor's dream come true. He preached, they responded. They repented. They got to work. So now, like any faithful pastor whose people have responded positively to the message of God's word, he turns from exhortation to encouragement, from rebuke to reassurance. It's a wonderful little sermon from which I intend this morning to make a little bigger one. Let's uh, ask the Lord's help, shall we? Father, we ask for your spirit to be present here. This would be for us not some empty exercise of words, or merely uh, one man spouting, but rather the voice of God. That is what we would hear, O Lord, and be changed and molded and recreated by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. 
and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? You know, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. If you open the driver's door on my car, one of the first things you'll notice sitting there on the floor next to the driver's seat is a pair of gloves. Winter, spring, summer, fall, there they are. Open the door, there are the gloves. Weird, you may think. Well, you had no idea. But uh, listen to this little excerpt from an article that I read, and maybe you'll cut me a little slack. America is a gas-guzzling, car-obsessed, open-road nation. Few things appeal to Americans more than a traffic-free, ideally, leisurely drive to a fun, kick-back-your-heels destination, all the while enjoying the passing scenery. Of course, in order to achieve this bucolic vision of paradise, we need to fuel up the car. And in order to do that, we have to stop at the gas station. A study by Kimberly Clark in 2015 investigating bacterial hot spots in the workplace fingered gas pumps as one of the unhealthiest things you can handle. And a new survey recently corroborates those findings. Admittedly, it's uh, probably no great surprise that gas Pumps are not exactly pristine, uh, never mind the chemical contamination that comes from gasoline itself. Think about the sheer number of people endlessly grabbing the pump, often after returning to a pit stop, from a pit stop to a not-so-hygienic gas station bathroom. You get the idea. Still, the new study gives one pause and suggests a bottle of sanitizer might not be a bad glove compartment staple or a pair of gloves. It's not just a number, the number of germs present on the gas pump handles, but the quality of those germs. The earlier Kimberly Clark study, led by University of Arizona microbiologist Charles Gerba, whom colleagues know as Dr. Germ, found that 71% of the gas pumps were highly contaminated with germs associated with disease. Based on laboratory laboratory results from swabs uh, uh, of the uh, gas pumps, handles on gas pumps had an average of 2 million 
11,970 colony forming units or CFUs or viable bacteria cells per square inch. Worse, the buttons on the pumps where you select the grade of gasoline you want had 2,617,067 CFUs per square inch. To put that in perspective, now money, which we all consider quite dirty, right, because it changes hands so often, has five CFUs per square inch. A toilet seat, a toilet seat has 172 CFUs per square inch. That makes the gas pump handle about 11,000 times more contaminated than a toilet seat. (laughs) And a gas pump button 15,000 times more contaminated. Now, do I need to say anything more about those gloves? I I don't think my skin has made contact (laughs) with a gas station pump in five years. And, you know, it never works the other way around. It never works backwards. I'm never tempted after watching 10 hail hardy, healthy people handling that gas pump to run up and grab hold of that gas pump handle or, or to rub my face on the button on the pump, you know, in the hopes of catching their healthiness. We all know that it is sickness that is contagious, not healthiness. Well, so it is with sin and holiness. Haggai opened the sermon with an illustration that seemed a bit foreign to us because we don't observe the ceremonial laws anymore. They were fulfilled in Christ, but Haggai's congregation felt the force of what he was saying. Just ask the priest, he says, ask the experts in the law, they'll tell you, verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold some bread, some stew, some wine, some oil, whatever kind of food, does it become holy? The priests say, no. Now let me fill in that picture just a little bit for you, if I may, please. Holy meat or consecrated meat, refers to the flesh of sacrificed animals. And in some types of offerings, much of the sacrificed animal might make its way back home with the uh, offerer of that uh, sacrifice to be eaten at a, a festive meal. And particularly in Haggai's day, with the temple still lying in ruins there, the priests would often have to carry away portions of the sacred meat. They'd use a fold in their garment to carry that meat, sort of a, a pocket of sorts. And so the specific question Haggai poses is, if he should happen to brush up against some other food along the way, and the fold of his robe should touch that, you know, does the cleanness of that meat make the food that he touches also clean by extension, sort of a third degree, you know, cleanliness? And the priest understanding the law, or at least the traditional understanding of such matters, rightly answer, no. The stew, the wine, oil, whatever, it doesn't become holy. And Haggai's not surprised by the answer. He expected it. Okay, he says, but let's, let's say someone has touched a dead body. We're talking about a human dead body here, of course, and there's, there's, they're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. 
And then they touch some bread or some stew or some wine or some oil. Does that bread or stew, wine, oil, does that become unclean? Unsurprisingly, they answer yes, it does. It does become unclean. Unsurprisingly, I say, because God's law was perfectly clear in this matter. You can look it up if you like in the book of Numbers and Leviticus that treat this matter of ceremonial uncleanliness from contact with a dead body and the contagious nature of that uncleanness by further contact uh, treats them very this very seriously. Now understand, Haggai is opening with an illustration to make a point. He's a wise preacher. He uses illustrations. Israel has originally been set apart by the Lord as holy. Right? You remember that. You remember the words of the Lord back in Mount Sinai, don't you? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what God set them apart to be. But that does not mean, therefore, that everything they do is sacred or or acceptable to God. See, holy status requires holy obedience. You understand that principle? Because it's true of you as well. Holy status requires holy obedience. In other words, though they had been set apart by God as holy, that status did not necessarily carry into everything they did, or in the case of the temple, apparently, what they didn't do. And even though they had started to rebuild the temple, it did not follow now that they had a blanket approval for everything they did. For example, they must not fall back into their old ways of thinking about, well, about the temple itself. Remember how beforehand the people had treated it as as some luck charm, good luck charm, that a talisman that automatically transmitted holiness to them by association. Everything they did, you see, needed to be measured, still had to be measured on the basis of God's covenant standards. The standards of holiness that he had set out in his covenant with them. You can read about those in Deuteronomy. Only in that way could they be confident of God's blessing. I suppose we might simplify at the risk of oversimplifying and put it this way. Holiness is as holiness does. Holiness is not caught by association with holy things or people. If you find a particularly holy church, joining that church will not make you more holy. Now, your joining may have the effect of making it less holy, but it does not work the other way around. You don't catch holiness by gripping the communion plate after a particularly holy person had held it any more than you catch healthiness by gripping the gasoline handle after a healthy person has. On the other hand, by their disobedience, our fathers and mothers in the faith had defiled themselves, and so everything they touched they was defiled, including their offerings. They were unclean. So we have to ask, where's the corpse, right? Where's the body? Well, there it is, right in their midst. They walk by it every day. They're looking at it now as Haggai is preaching. There she is, the temple. 
a rotting corpse. And as a result, God was distancing himself from them. Don't you hear it in his language? It makes you shudder when you hear it. Verse 14, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. That's scary language. Not my people, not my chosen nation. No, this people, this nation. You hear it in God's voice, by their unholiness, by their defilement, by their unholy behavior. They're driving a wedge between themselves and God, the one who had first set them, set them apart as holy. And as a result, and it's a very important connection for us to draw, as a result of their unholy behavior, things are not going well. And they've not been going well for some time, for some 16, 20 years. Because of their defilement, because of their disobedience, that is, by which they have defiled themselves, we have already seen back in Haggai's first message, their crops have either failed or been very disappointing. Drought has come, hunger upon them. Uh, what they put in their pockets by way of wages seems to go right through because their pockets, their bags have holes. The problem to this point, apparently, is that they have failed to make the connection. They've not connected the dots between their defilement, their disobedience, and the way things are going. The futility, the frustration, the fruitlessness, literally and figuratively, that has come to characterize and mark and mar their lives. Here's the point for us, dear flock. Listen closely, my brothers and sisters. We must learn from this history, from from our history recorded for us in Holy Scripture to connect the dots properly, properly that is, oh, so carefully, wisely, but certainly. There are two patterns presented for us in this history and in this text, as you may have guessed from reading the sermon title in your bulletin this morning. Defilement and discipline on the one hand. Repentance and restoration on the other. Take a look at them with me. First, notice the connection that Scripture draws, not only here but all over the place, between defilement and discipline. By their disobedience to God, they had defiled themselves. And now, because God is to them a faithful, covenant-keeping God, a father because he's a loving father. He disciplines them. Consider this carefully. The Lord invites them to, to think closely about this. When they were living in disobedience, that is in their specific case, before they started rebuilding the temple or when they had abandoned the work of rebuilding, verse 16, how did you fare? God is saying, think this through. Consider. Think carefully. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, you found what? Ten. You came to the wine vat, you expected to draw 50 measures, but there's only 20. The point is, things were in short supply. The grain was always coming up short. When they brought enough grapes to the press to make 50 measures, lo and behold, there was a 60% shortage of anticipated yield. You ask any farmer, 
you know, what a 60% loss means to them in a harvest. And you'll understand, ask any vine dresser, 60% loss in grapes. What do they do? Shrug their shoulders. You know, stumbled along, slogged their way through economically disastrous, ruinous times without thinking, without ever questioning what's happening here. What's the matter? So God makes it perfectly clear what's the matter, what is happening to them with unmistakable, even striking language. Verse 17. Let's just peel everything back and say it the way it is. I struck you. I struck you and the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Tragic. If it wasn't the hot desert winds coming in and, and, uh, from the uh, east, and and reducing their crops to dust. It was the, the wet wind coming from the west off the Mediterranean bringing mildew. Two curses, by the way, listed specifically for those who break God's covenant by their disobedience in the book of Deuteronomy. And then he adds a third, hail. Think Egypt. It was God who did this. It was God who killed their crops who strangle them slowly with heat or with moisture or or wipe them out with a single hailstorm year after year after year after year and year after year after year they they didn't turn to God they didn't repent why would God do such a thing why would a good God here's here's the 21st century question right here's what you'll hear on the street if you ask How could a good God do something like this? Why would a good God bring bad things and upon his own people? Ah, you see, to ask the question is to answer it. Isn't it? That last one, God did these things, God brought these bad things on them, Because they were his people. Because they were his people. Precisely because they were his children, his chosen ones, his people. Ah, but surely, we take a breath of sigh of relief, right? God doesn't act that way anymore. That's God of old, right? Surely he isn't so harsh, so stern, so severe today, right? So it is widely thought and said today, even in the church. God has changed. God doesn't treat his children that way anymore. Who could ever think such a thing? Only some, you know, puritanical type, right? As a matter of fact, speaking of Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, one of the greatest English Puritans, indeed one of the Westminster divines, say his extensive library was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. What to think of it, looking at the burned ruins of his library? 
Listen to this. Listen to what Thomas Goodwin says. I loved my books too well, and the Lord rebuked me. Can you imagine that response? The response from a, a Christian therapist here in Owensboro, Mr. Goodwin, lying on the on the couch there. And the, the counselor said, oh, come, come now. Come, Mr. Goodwin. Uh, God isn't like that. God is gentle. God is kind. You never do anything like that. Goodwin knew better. Goodwin, one of the greatest of all theologians of the period, knew his Bible, and he knew it very, very well. Now, perhaps he couldn't know for sure if God was punishing him for loving his books too much, but he thought that God was punishing him in part because he was convicted that he did love his books more than he should, and that he should have loved God more, something many ministers can sympathize with. He certainly, he could certainly uh, know that much, couldn't he? He had a guilty conscience about his books. A- and he could say it because he knows that God does punish his people for their sins, and, and ministers especially. God disciplines those he loves. Does God love you? If he does, he will discipline you. Now, where do we read such a thing? In Hebrews. In the New Testament, if you if you like. My son, he says to us. My son. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That applies, that word son, by the way, applies to you uh, ladies as well. Son, you are called there. It might be a little weird to you, but you too are a son of God because you are an heir and you're in the place of a son of God. You are an heir just as surely as the men in this room of his covenant and his promises. Uh, It is in Hebrews 12 that we read that. And you know what's really interesting about this that struck me this week? That 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 should be in Hebrews 12. This is the interesting thing. The only place that I know of anyway, maybe you correct me, but the only place that I know of where Haggai is quoted in the New Testament is Hebrews 12. And the writer in Hebrews 12 is making the same point as Haggai. He says effectively, respond well when God disciplines you. Let it turn you from your defilement, whatever that defilement may be. And the writer of Hebrews gives us some examples. He says, if it's a belligerent spirit toward others, you know, if it's that root of bitterness that you've been nursing in your heart against someone or against God or whatever, that sexual immorality, that unholiness, whatever it may be, Dear flock, do you understand this? Please understand and receive this well. If you defile yourself with disobedience, God will discipline you. 
Or maybe more to the point, do you understand that the difficulties you're struggling with right now? The financial struggles, the family struggles, the the personal issues, the business troubles, the health issues you're suffering. These may well be God's rod of discipline falling across your back. Now, I know that sounds strange to you. It's not a message you're going to hear from the, the pop preachers, but that's that's just what the Bible tells us to think and to consider carefully. My brothers and sisters, in the covenant, let's remember that about ourselves, okay? We are in God's covenant. Our covenant keeping, God, our, our heavenly Father, He loves us. He loves you way too much to let you go on sinning without bringing some consequence. Afflictions are often, as C.S. Lewis called our pains, God's megaphone. Are you listening? I'm not saying, of course, please, I'm not saying that every single affliction we suffer must certainly be God's discipline for some particular sin. And I'm certainly not giving you license to be like Job's friends. To help each other in the narthex to understand, oh, I hear you've been sick lately. Well, let me tell you what's going on. You must really have, you know, made God angry. Oh, what friends, you know, with friends like that, Job says, who needs enemies? But uh, we don't understand that. Uh, we don't understand it all. Sometimes we suffer, uh, frankly, with, for no apparent reason. Some of our suffering is just because we live in a fallen world and our flesh is fallen and we're fallen people. It's just the conditions we live in. But, but, ask, ask. Indeed, does not scripture require you at least to ask God? God, what is it? What, what's out of alignment in my life? What, what change are you requiring? What, what, what particular disobedience are you seeking to, to drive out of your son's heart, out of your daughter's life, out of my heart, out of my life by this affliction? Lord, show me. Didn't the psalmist say that? Show me if there's any offensive way in me. I remember the psalmist saying, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be afflicted, O Lord, that I might return to you, to your law. Sometimes it'll be obvious. You know, if you're, if you're stealing in business, big surprise when your business falters, right? If you neglect your children, no wonder the rift is developing. If you're robbing God of the tithe, it's no brainer that you should be struggling financially. God laid that one out clearly. God brings discipline. This is one point that one of our male counselors had to make recently at our CareNet Pregnancy Center to a young church going, well, he's a boy is what he is who came into our center in a frenzied panic that he might have contracted a sexually transmitted disease and carried that STD to his girlfriend from one of his uh, several previous uh, liaisons. God, this young man needs to understand, does not let God's 
He does not let his sons and daughters defile themselves without, without consequence, without discipline. He simply loves us too much for that. And don't doubt that it is so. He does this all the time. Now, your question, of course, is how do I know? How do I know if this difficulty that I'm facing is, is God's discipline or just one of those fallen conditions we've talked about? Well, it takes, as I said a few minutes ago, it takes wisdom. It requires discernment, perhaps, most of all, a humble spirit. That may be actually the most important thing. A humble spirit that's ready to receive and to submit to God's discipline, to, as the Puritans used to put it, to kiss the rod, and to repent. Which brings me to the second point this morning, which is shorter than the first. If the first is that we must learn to connect defilement and disobedience with discipline in our lives, second, let us connect repentance and restoration. Let's not be afraid to do this. Okay, that you see was the remedy and it still is. Repentance is the remedy. Turn to me, God says, turn to me. That very thing that they had failed to do for year after year after year. And, and what is repentance fundamentally? Well, it's just that it's, it's turning to God. It's turning from our sin to God. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful? When we've been disobeying God, when we've been turning away from him, and and he brings down the rod, repentance is what he wants. That's that's all he wants. (laughs) What could he have required of us? You know, to somehow make up for this bad thing we've done, to try to, you know, accumulate some good merits to overcome the bad merit. What hopelessness that would be, right? But... All God says is, as disobedient as you've been, prodigal son comes to mind, doesn't he? Just come back. Just come back. And my arms are open to receive you. Ah, what greater blessing in the world anyway than to run back into our Savior's arms. Then to find our Father ready to receive us. Then to find that the shepherd still loves his sheep. In fact, you might find on your way back, little sheep, to the shepherd that he has been seeking you. We know it. We, we know it from experience who have been Christians for any length of time. The path of obedience is the path of blessing. It is a path of peace. It is a path of wholeness. It is the path of joy. It is when we're obeying God that we're in our happy place. That is our happy place. Our safe place. No matter the dangers, the difficulties that might face us there, obedience is the path of blessing. No wonder that the very first psalm, the first psalm that set the tone for the whole rest of the Psalter, the other 149 psalms to follow, starts the entire Psalter by enumerating the blessings that befall the person who delights in the law of the Lord. The refreshing water to the roots, the abundant fruit, the unwithering leaf, the prosperity 
Don't be afraid of that word. It's a Bible word. Everything he does prospers. The intimacy with God, all of it. Here Haggai boldly assures and promises God's repentant people prosperity. He says in verse 18, Mark this day forward how the Lord will bless you since you started obeying God. Is the point. Now you're obeying God. Now you're living holy lives. Now you're following him and doing what he has commanded you to do in the first place. Now... Watch, just watch and see how God is going to bless you and restore you and prosper you. In fact, Haggai, this is really bold for a preacher. Of course, he's got the Lord. He's inspired, isn't he? He says, look, the next crop, watch and see if it isn't so. Now, you understand, I hope, well, I don't expect you to understand because I didn't either until I studied it. This 24th day of the ninth month in verse 18 is equivalent to our December. So the time for sowing, when the early rain had softened the ground from October to November, had passed. That's why in verse 19 it says there was no seed left in the barn. Why was there no seed left in the barn? Because all the seed had been planted. You know, all their resources, all their resources were now in the ground. And now all they could do was wait. An act of waiting, no doubt, filled with obedience. They were building the temple, but waiting nonetheless through the winter for the latter rains to come in March and April to see what will that harvest be like. There was no surplus, you see, to bring forward from the past. When the next harvest turned out to be a bumper crop, something none of them could have known ahead of time, but that Haggai prophesied, then they would know to whom to attribute that blessing, right? The only person to God. It's been the better part of two decades now. They've been disobeying him, and discipline has been falling on them. Poor harvests, one after another. But now they had repented, and God is going to do more than restore. Verse 19 says the Lord, from this day on, I will bless you. What is this, my brothers and sisters, but just another way that God has said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Or repent, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Or Those who honor me, I will honor. Or if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Or delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And a thousand other ways that the Bible says the very same thing with precious promises that fill God's word. Dear flock, let's learn to make these connections between defilement and discipline and repentance and restoration. Why not learn from our Father's example, right? Of years spent under the rod. What a waste of time that might otherwise have been years of prosperity and bumper crops and peace and blessing if only they had repented. Oh, the time we've wasted, my brothers and sisters. The years we've burned the pure pleasure we miss 
when we keep dabbling with the contagion of our sin instead of the true happiness that marks the holy ones, the repentant. Those who seek him, obey him, repent and follow him. Ah, you know those blessings, don't you? And you know them even in prospect, don't you? How they far outweigh any of the temporal disadvantages you might meet in this life. We remember, don't we, from just a short time ago in Corinthians, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen.